0: tried so hard to come up with an answer. Why could we have not done this sooner? But you also learn very quickly that it's kind of a waste of time to keep thinking about why. Instead, you have to think about what? What do I do now?
1: Lung cancer. It's a tough topic. It's a disease that affects patients, families, friends, co-workers. But first, it's a disease that affects people. The Hope With Answers Living With Lung Cancer podcast brings you stories about people living, truly living with lung cancer. The researchers dedicated to finding new breakthrough treatments and others who are working to bring hope into the lung cancer experience. You'll hear a lot of discussion about clinical trials on the Hope With Answers Living With Lung Cancer podcast. That's because they're on the cutting edge of lung cancer treatments and often lead to new ways to treat the disease that
2: become the standard of care. And in this podcast, we'll talk to a veteran of not one, not two, not three, but four clinical trials, including one that gave her hope just when things were looking pretty
1: dark indeed. We'll also hear from other lung cancer patients who have turned their diagnosis into advocacy campaigning for better lung cancer research funding and
2: helping others with the lung cancer journey. And finally, we'll find out more about what a clinical trial really is and why it might be the best hope for living a longer and healthier life with lung cancer.
1: Have you ever heard of a clinical trial? It's not a courtroom trial with lawyers and judges. It's basically where they test new lung cancer treatments that could become the standard of
2: care. This is the cutting edge exactly. of lung cancer research. And behind these clinical trials are people, relationships between patients and their families, friends, advocates, and their doctors. So let's
1: start with the astounding story of Linnea Olson. She has been living with lung cancer for almost 15 years years. Amazing.
0: I was diagnosed in April of 2005. I was 45 years old, um, mother of three. My youngest was seven. At that point in time, I had been sick for several years and um, pursuing various doctors trying to figure out some sort of diagnosis. Never occurred to me that the symptoms I was experiencing could be related to something like lung cancer because I had never smoked. And I didn't know that it was even possible for a non-smoker to get lung cancer. So when I finally got the diagnosis after contracting pneumonia that just wouldn't clear up, I told my now ex-husband that I wouldn't have been more surprised if I had received a diagnosis of prostate cancer.
1: Right, right. Absolutely, and
0: in all of that,
1: I mean, you, we have your story. You, you have young kids. You've had this unbelievable diagnosis where your brain has to just shut down because you're just so shocked. I'm guessing, but you decided then to become an advocate, um, and and you really had to get find that strength so you could ask the questions and advocate for yourself. Tell me a little bit about that.
0: Well, I won't say that. It was something that came naturally. You know, I certainly I pushed hard on my diagnosis. And in some ways, I think any feedback I got on that was negative because at a certain point in time, I had been sent to a neurologist who worked me up for MS because some of my initial symptoms were upper body weakness, probably the result of a paraneoplastic syndrome. the test came back negative. He invited me into his office, had me sit down and said to me, so what do you think is wrong with you? And I said, I have no idea. I just know something's wrong. And then he says, have you heard of hypochondria? And I think the fact that I was a young woman, rather intense because I was worried and that I was trying so hard to find an answer that this was sort of the modern-day version of saying you're hysterical.
2: Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, and talk us through a little bit about your experience just getting a diagnosis. I mean, this was a, a years-long quest for you to get somebody who would listen and pay attention.
0: It really was. And, you know, fate can intervene in odd ways. In my particular case, I had a general practitioner who was young, um, He thought outside the box. I liked him very much. He's the one who sent me to a neurologist. He also had given me a chest x-ray. And it would only be years later when I asked for my records that I would see that he had written on the order on the off chance that this young non-smoking woman has a lung neoplasm. Now, this doctor was killed on 9-11. He was in one of the planes that hit the towers. So I ended up inheriting another doctor at the practice who was very traditional, very complacent. She diagnosed me with adult-onset asthma. So I was treated for asthma for two years prior to getting the pneumonia. And, you know, when I got the diagnosis, it it was so frustrating but also you you spend a little bit of time initially thinking why me you know i tried so hard to come up with an answer why could we have not done this sooner but you also learn very quickly that it's kind of a waste of time to keep thinking about why instead you have to think about what like what do i do now
2: what i think is so fascinating is how you learn to advocate Another advocate actually um, said to me last week that first you have to learn how to advocate for yourself and then you learn how to advocate for other people, other lung cancer survivors and that I think is is your absolute gift I mean how do
0: you do that? How did you learn how to advocate for yourself i think i I learned simply out of necessity you know it it became clear to me that. Nobody cared about my life quite as much as I did. You know, in that I wanted so badly to live. And this was underscored after I had my my lobectomy. And my son, who'd been seven at the time of diagnosis, he turned eight the day I think it was the day after my lobectomy. And his father brought him to the hospital. He crawled into my bed. And he just made these little animal noises. And as a mother, I just thought, I can't die. You know, this is not an option. I need to stay alive. So I learned to advocate out of necessity. And in doing so,
1: you tapped into humor in a way that just, I think for both Sarah and I, it amazes us how you did that. Um, You say, instead of no evidence of disease, NED, you're NDY, not dead yet, right? Talk about that You're, because your humor is so poignant and yet it kind of t- takes a lot of the tension out of the room when people are talking to you about this.
0: Well, I, I mean, I think I always was funny and getting cancer wasn't going to make me less funny, you know, and um, it sort of gives you a pass or a buy to employ this dark humor you know, and it was something that, that helped me too initially to be able to take the tension out of myself, you know, because cancer, when we're growing up, it's one of those things that just has the ability to terrify you, it kind of seems like the worst thing possible. And here I was, I mean, I had cancer, you know, and so I had to figure out a way to Kind of deal with it and and the humor was something that really helped.
2: you and I have talked before and and Diane and I giggled and giggled at the conversation that we had about how to date with lung cancer
0: dating while dying, I call it <laughs> <laughs> See, there's that sense of humor right there and what
2: I love about your experience talking about that is that um, lung cancer figured into it. But your philosophy coming
0: out of it, you know, you you likened it to a sandbox. What do you mean by that? When I first started online dating, and you need to know, it took me a full year after deciding I would do it to get the nerve to actually do it, because online dating at my age is frightening enough, but doing it when you also have a terminal illness, you know it's not exactly a selling point. So I had to get up the nerve. And My initial profile mentioned, I thought, in a very straightforward way, that I had cancer, but it was also a little bit combative, where I said, I can deal with this. If you can't, don't bother. And frankly, most people didn't bother. So my next profile, I was kind of put out by this, and I had figured out at this point that online dating was also a little bit like a catalog. Catalog of souls. And so I got very cheeky in my next profile. And I said, I started it with I have natural blonde hair, long legs, really long legs, boobs, big boobs, and they're real. I grew them the summer after high school. (laughs) (laughs) And then I segued very gently into the fact that I had cancer. Certainly, I got more hits. But with time, I kind of decided to not mention the cancer at all, to just wait until somebody met me and then tell them, which frankly was very hard too. But I was telling Sarah that six weeks ago with my progression going on, I switched up my profile again to reflect the fact that I now had this cancer that had progressed. I was going to have to return to chemotherapy. I was waiting on a clinical trial that it was kind of a a tough go, but I also emphasized how energetic and scrappy and optimistic I was. I think I threw in the word sexy.
1: (laughs) Good for you.
0: (laughs) <laughs> and much to my surprise, you know, I'm thinking this is my swan song, my nice way of saying goodbye. And I have had perhaps more interest than ever before, wow. which which has been so good for both my self esteem and my soul to know that they can deal with this,
1: right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and they're they're compassionate, and it's it is when you give people a chance. Lots of
0: times, you find good in people, right? Yeah, and I have in my profile that I'm looking for someone brave, true, and strong, and this is a great way to weed them out. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Well, on that note. (laughs)
1: Yeah.
2: Well, I think it's so interesting because you, you know, um, I think what I love about you so much is that you have figured out how life goes on and how to live with the hand you're dealt. And I'm thinking about that because I'm hearing life go on outside the door of our room. And, you know, you never know, um, you never know what's happening for people. And and everybody has to keep going, right?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And the fact that you were courageous enough, talk about brave, true, and strong. Yeah. That you are courageous enough to even put yourself out there. A lot of people without um, having a terminal illness, are uh, are not intrepid enough to go ahead and put up something on on internet dating. <laughs> dating. <So. laughs>
0: yeah, although you know, I think in a strange way, having a terminal illness can actually be very freeing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, what do I have to lose? You know, I'm. That's true. I'm just gonna get out there and try. But it it did take courage. You know, it it probably took more courage than anything else I've done because. You're already afraid that people are going to reject you just based on who you are. And you certainly don't want to be rejected on the basis of an illness. But, you know, I I can tell all my peeps out there who also have cancer that that has absolutely not been the case.
2: That's a wonderful thing
1: to hear. Yeah,
0: That's a great
2: thing to hear. Yeah. What do you think your takeaways are, just to close the loop you know, if somebody comes to you now and says, I'm thinking about a clinical trial I'm, I'm, I'm in this place, what are your top three messages for somebody who's thinking about uh, or has heard about clinical trials and might be considering them?
0: All right. I guess my number one would be that for me, I, I don't look at a clinical trial as being kind of a, a last ditch choice. Instead, I look at it as being my best option you know it's it's the way that i'm going to get the cutting edge treatment that frankly my situation now requires because i've had so many different modalities of treatment i remember when i entered my first trial my oncologist at the time told me that he felt that i would actually fare even better in a trial because That much more scrutiny was paid to my case, you know, that much more attention. I suddenly had this whole team who were concerned with my welfare. I really was part of the team, where before, if I were to come in with some minor complaint, I felt like perhaps I was wasting my very busy oncologist's time. But now that I was in a phase one clinical trial, they wanted to hear every little detail. Um I was kind of the the reporter, the astronaut, you know, I was the person who'd gone out in space and was telling them what I'd seen. And so that in itself was very very empowering. So to
1: be a bit cheeky, was it easier than online dating?
0: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> this is why we love you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
2: Well, thank you for sharing your story, and thank you for sharing all of this really wonderful information for people who might be um, thinking about a clinical trial and then thinking about online dating. Exactly.
0: <laughs> all right. Yeah, I'm happy to give advice on either. <laughs> That's fabulous.
1: Thank you so much, Linnea. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Great talking to you both. We hope you're enjoying the LCFA Hope with Answers Living with Lung Cancer podcast. It's produced as part of our nonprofit mission the support and expansion of lung cancer research, accomplished by raising funds that serve to increase the public's awareness of lung cancer status as the leading cause of cancer death, inform and educate lung cancer patients in their lung cancer journey, and fund innovative lung cancer research. We all have a community a group of family, friends, co-workers, people drawn together by commonalities. The LCFA Speakers Bureau is drawn together through their shared experience of living
2: with lung cancer. Jill Feldman, Ivy Elkins, and Lisa Bonanno, you've heard from all these gals before if you've listened to the Hope With Answers video series or the Hope With Answers Living With Lung Cancer podcasts. They spend a great deal of their time these days working as advocates, helping other people learn how to live with lung cancer, and advocating for better research
1: funding. So listen in as these three friends talk about how they've made advocacy such a meaningful part of their lives.
3: So when I was diagnosed, it, research became my lifeline, my future, and I had four kids. I didn't want them to ever go through what I went through. So, I got involved in research advocacy. Yeah, I guess it's been almost 10 years. And that's where I found that it wasn't that easy for me. I still labor through the science and the statistics and all of that. But I've learned that, you know, as a patient, it is so important that we have to use our voice. We can change the trajectory of research and that our input could help research and its outcomes be more relevant to us. And so it was kind of a niche that needed to be filled and still does. So I really, most of my time went down that path. And I still continue. One of the most important things really though to me is connecting with others, making sure that people who are newly diagnosed have the resources and don't ever have to go at it alone or suffer in silence like my family did.
2: That's something that all three of you do is work with um, people who've been diagnosed. Is that face-to-face, is that through social media? Is that through biomarker groups? Some,
4: it's a variety actually, a little bit of all of it. When I was first diagnosed, um, you know, when I was trying to find my way in the community, I benefited a lot from meeting other patients who had been through things ahead of me. As a matter of fact, Jill was the first person who I was introduced to as another lung cancer patient. And, you know, that helped me so much that I really made a big effort to get to know other patients and connect with them and help them and support them. But, um, you know, it's, the power of you know these online groups and social media is fantastic because um i live in the chicago area and i'm lucky enough to have you know some other um people who are living with lung cancer, who live locally, who I can get together with. But because of the online communities, I can communicate with people in you know, every state in the US and around the world. And we can share information and treatment and trials and information about managing side effects and all kinds of things. And that's one of the things that a lot of the biomarker groups, EGFR resistors, out positive, lost wonders. There's one for RET now, the KRAS kickers. Mm-hmm. I mean, that really, really helps to pull together people who are all going through the the same type of thing, regardless of where they live, and regardless of who their oncologist is or what hospital they go to. Um, you know, there could be a information about a trial coming up in some major medical center and if you may not live anywhere near there but you can connect online through someone who can tell you about it it's you know the greatest way for patients to learn from other patients. It's really, really important. And I was only diagnosed a little over six years ago and that didn't even, none of that existed really when I was first diagnosed. I mean, there were no biomarker groups, there was a little bit of you know online communities, but nothing like what exists now where there's just tremendous amount of, of resources and ways to share research and knowledge.
2: Lisa, I'm thinking about your participation in things that didn't exist two years ago. So, you know, Hope With Answers podcasts, Hope With Answers videos, the video series. And, you know, those take a lot of work. That's, um, you know, to to think about who are the doctors we need to talk to and, you know, how do we divide this up over beginning, intermediate and, and advanced? What makes those projects really worth your time and energy to participate in?
5: I think the Hope With the Answer series has honestly been one of the best things I think that I've put my efforts into because of the ability to connect with patients at any time. Obviously, they're online. People can access them anytime they want. But like, we all live in different cities, and people that are in smaller cities, don't, not even smaller cities, I don't live in a small city and I don't have access to some of these amazing you know, research facilities and teaching hospitals. We don't have lung cancer trials in my state. So being able to put these questions out there in a very casual conversational way of patients literally just picking the doctor's brain. This is what I wanna know about, tell me more about it. And it's stuff that um, we hoped as patients or we felt as patients that, you know, everybody kind of has in the beginning and build on those with the very basics of, you know, this is what it is and go from there as far as their educational level and where they are in their treatment um, process at the time. So it's a lot of information, it's a lot of work to kind of plan those and um, to kind of see it all come to fruition. But I think having those out there and knowing, that the innumerable amount of people really that they can reach and that they can help is, is really worth my energy specifically. I mean, it's one of, the, one of the best projects, I think, that I've done so far. And I've done a lot. I've put my toes in a lot of different ponds and had to kind of figure out what worked for me and what didn't.
1: Want more with Hope With Answers? Visit us online at lcfamerica.org where you can find out more information about the latest in lung cancer research, new treatments, and more. You can also join the conversation with LCFA on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. This whole podcast, we've been talking about clinical trials, why you might want to consider participating in one, where to get more information, and what to expect. You've also heard us mention the Hope With Answers video project where you can hear from lung cancer patients interviewing top doctors and researchers to get more information about treatments, terminology, and questions to ask their own doctors. And you can find the Hope With Answers project on the LCFA website at lcfamerica.org.
2: We've also been talking about relationships. And one of the things that's so special about watching the Hope With Answers series is seeing powerful examples of really strong doctor-patient relationships. And you'll hear that in this conversation between advocate Janet freeman Daly and University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Center lung cancer specialist, Dr. Ross Kammidge. You're in for a treat.
6: Ross, if someone is interested in a clinical trial, um, how do they bring that up with their doctor? Do they say, is is that a treatment option for me?
7: Well, I I can imagine two scenarios. So one is um, you feel, or your family or friends have said, don't forget to ask about clinical trials, and then you've just got to inject that into the conversation so the doctor's telling you about what they plan to do, and then you have to sort of say, hold on a second, is there something within a clinical trial that might be a, a better fit for me? And we can unpack that later. The other situation is where you're going in and you're expecting them to talk about treatment, and then they go, "Oh, and by the way, I want to talk to you about this clinical trial." And, and then your, and your brain go goes, up. "Yeah, <laughs> 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 you know." And so you, that's where you know you have to go, "Whoa!" And again, you have to get a toolkit for learning how to deal with that. And you know, say, you know, is this clinical trial a terrible idea, or is this the best thing for me?
6: Okay. So some of the concerns on that is. Uh, does this hospital or this doctor's office have clinical trials or do I have to go somewhere else?
7: So the the current situation is unfortunately that the clinical trial doesn't come to you, you have to go to where the clinical trial is. So if your doctor's office has a clinical trial, that's good, you can explore what that clinical trial is. It may not be the best one, there may be other trials somewhere else. Let's say that trial is somewhere else. First of all, you have gotta check that your insurance is gonna cover you to go there. But if it does, then they tend to adopt most, if not all, of your care whilst you're on that trial.
6: Okay. So you, you talked about my insurance. If if I want to go into a clinical trial because I think it's going to pay for all my care, does that work, or, or what does the clinical trial actually cover? Well,
7: so no. Strangely enough, that that's not because that would be considered an incentive to go into the clinical trial. You you'd be bribing someone to be a oh, guinea pig. Oh, okay. Yeah. So what? What happens is stuff which you normally have a copay for, you have a copay for. Yeah,
6: lots of copays.
7: <laughs> <laughs> but stuff which is kind of like extra, you know, a, a brand new drug that isn't licensed. You can't you can't charge you for something that's not licensed or new tests or extra scans or whatever. Anything that's on top of the standard of care is absorbed by the sponsor of the study.
6: Okay, so standard of care. Um, I understand that if you go into a clinical trial, they're usually at a teaching hospital or an academic hospital. I would expect that they would be very up on the best ways to do cancer care. In some ways, going to a clinical trial ensures you're going to get the best possible cancer care.
7: Well, you're horribly biased because you're looked after by me, but yes. (laughs) Um, It's true. So the, the reality is that the places which do clinical trials sometimes are also at the cutting edge for lots of other things now so that's a kind of ancillary benefit and also when you're in a clinical trial you just tend to get fussed over more you know you're i, I wrote an article once upon a time which was about you know guinea pigs uh, test pilots or prize poodles and it came from the the idea that i had a patient who said I'm, I'm on this trial i don't feel like a guinea pig with everyone fussing over me i feel like a prize poodle and so that, you know, that's the kind of knock-on, knock-on benefit of being in a Woof. trial. Woof. <laughs> <laughs> I like your hair. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
6: <laughs> all right. So does that mean if I go to a clinical trial, I don't see my own doctor at my own hospital anymore?
7: Well, um, so it, there isn't one simple answer to that. So sometimes you can transition all of your care to where that clinical trial is, and they adopt you, and they do everything for you. Sometimes if we use Kaiser as an example, they, they have more of a – a kind of partnership relationship. So they will send someone to go on a clinical trial somewhere else, but they try and keep the big ticket standard of care items within the Kaiser system. So you have to have your CT scans back at Kaiser, or if something happens, like you need hydration with intravenous fluids, you have to go have it back at um, Kaiser. So it's a little clunky, but it also means that you get to stay in contact with your, your old doctor.
6: Well, so in my case, I live in Seattle and I go to my clinical trial in Denver my main oncologist is a thousand miles away. If I have an issue with um, not feeling well, I might call my local doctor because I want to go into my local hospital. But they can always call you, and then you can tell them, you know what how, how they might modify things because of the drug that I'm on
7: yeah I think that makes sense I mean if I think if you live locally and somebody says "Well, I'm gonna adopt everything that might be the easiest option for some people but yeah I, I mean I have patients who travel from Shanghai to come and see me and so it's good that they have a local doctor because <laughs> I I don't do house calls in Shanghai
2: You don't even need to see that video to hear the relationship between doctor and patient in that conversation about clinical trials. I
1: know, it's so fun. If you wanna hear and see more Hope With Answers, you can find lots of video conversations organized by level and topic in the Hope With Answers tab on lcfamerica.org. We'll be right back. Through the generosity of donors like you, LCFA is able to fund cutting edge research that will lead to new treatments and protocols with the goal of greater survival rates for lung cancer patients everywhere. We can't do it without you. Consider making a donation by visiting lcfamerica.org and clicking on the donate button. Thank you for listening to the Hope With Answers Living With Lung Cancer podcast today. We'd like to thank our guests, all members of the LCFA Speakers Bureau, Linnea Olson, Jill Feldman, Ivy Elkins, Lisa Bonanno, and Janet freeman Daly. And
2: thank you to Dr. Ross Kammidge from the CU Anschutz Medical Center who joined us on the Hope with Answers video. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time.
1: The Hope with Answers Living with Lung Cancer podcast is produced by the Lung Cancer Foundation of America. Find more information online at lcfamerica.org. Thanks for listening.